we on? I think we're on. I've got to move the furniture around here. And I have to get the water because I don't want it to be a dry sermon. Don't get excited. The jokes don't get any better. I do want to thank Pastor Mike for the invitation and uh, chance to be here and be able to share this word. It's exciting to me, this word. Uh, and like I said, when I first heard that song, I got so excited about the message that was in it. Sometimes I think we don't give enough value. We don't ascribe enough value or enough worth to the grace of God. And so that's what we hope to do today is is to try to just help us grasp the enormity of the grace of God. If we can go ahead and get that started. A moment of grace. Now, I have, to, I have to preface this. Technology is wonderful when it works and when it doesn't. I didn't put the little music note up there. The computer, when we transferred it to this computer, it did that all by itself. You'll see that throughout the whole message here, but we'll just ignore that, okay? I'm fortunate, Pastor Mike said, sometimes it changes language on him, so changes his English to Greek, so I guess we're lucky in that regard. So, anyway, a moment of grace, the sound of rocks dropping to the ground, and we'll get into that in just a little bit. Our scripture today comes from Ephesians, second chapter, in the sixth verse, and it says, And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms, in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace. Everybody say incomparable riches. That's a very important point. The incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith And this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Can you say amen to that? If I said incomparable riches to you, I wonder how you would describe it. I I think if we're going to really understand this verse, we need to have some frame of reference. So I, I began to think about incomparable riches, and I did a little research. And I came up with Jeff Bezos. He's the founder and, and uh, owner, basically, of Amazon. Anybody ever shop Amazon? Yeah, we're Amazon-holics at our, ch- at our church, at our house. So he is uh, worth $110 billion. That's his net worth. That's staggering when you think about it. And then I thought about this guy, Bill Gates, founded Microsoft. He's only worth $93 billion net worth. And then as we go on down the scale, poor little Mark Zuckerberg, he only has $77.5 billion. But then again, he's only 33. So, you know, (laughs) give him a little time there. I thought about this and and it's hard to even fathom, at least for someone of, of my financial stature, it's hard to imagine what it'd be like to have that kind of riches. I mean, just it's phenomenal. And yet when I read this verse, it says that the incomparable riches of his grace. 
What if I told you today that I want to share with you something that is worth more than all of the net worths of all of these guys and all of the other millionaires and billionaires out there combined? Wouldn't that be exciting if I could share that with you today? And yet that's what God's Word says. It says incomparable. It means it's incapable of being compared to God's grace. All of the riches of the world cannot even be compared with God's grace. So the goal today is to help us realize, to kind of wrap our heads around the value and the enormity of the grace of God. I've heard it said oftentimes, and I'll probably say it a lot here today, there's still no other word for grace but amazing. The old, old song written by John Newton, Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound. There's still today, in 2018, there's still no other word for grace but amazing If we're going to study grace and and wrap our head around it, we need to define what grace is. Grace, defined by Vine's Expository Dictionary, says that which bestows or occasions pleasure, delight, or causes favorable regard. It's defined as divine favor. If we expand that and, and get into the meaning of the word grace, we find that the word grace as it's used in the scriptures literally means favor. I like to say it like this, I'm God's favorite. Turn to your neighbor and say, you're God's favorite. If you are a child of God, you are walking in the favor of Almighty God, and you are God's favorite. I heard it put like this one time, and I love this analogy. I love the thought of this. If God had a refrigerator, your picture would be on it. Isn't that awesome? I'm on God's refrigerator because I'm God's favorite. He loves me that much. When used in reference to God, it is the benevolent action of Him stooping down to us in His kindness to reach us in our need and convey upon us a benefit. His grace has been termed unmerited favor, unearned, undeserved unmerited favor, but it's more than an attitude of favor or mercy. Now listen to this. Here here comes the meat of this. His mercy is an expression of his compassion toward us, but his grace is an extension of benevolence translated into action. I, I don't know about you, but I like somebody that's an action Jackson. I don't like just, just empty words and empty talk. And God's saying, my grace is not empty. But it's translated into action. It is God Almighty Himself stooping down to help us in a very real and a very material way. Not just spiritual things off in the the atmosphere somewhere. But God's mercy and God's grace actually translated into action. We read the verse earlier that said that we were saved by grace. What an awesome thought that is. So, in summary, I always like to say it like this. Grace is the undeserved, unmerited, and unlimited favor of God. You are God's favorite. Somebody say amen to that. 
I like being God's favorite. I like walking in the favor of God. I like walking in the grace of God. Amen? Not only has it saved me, but a whole lot more than that too. The Apostle Paul said this in 1 Corinthians 15, 9, and 10. He said, For I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Now think about this. Think about that moment of grace. That moment of grace for Paul on the Damascus Road. He had persecuted the church. He was a, a devout, devout Jew, but he was perse- he persecuting the church. But he had that moment of grace. Verse 10, he says, But by the grace of God, I am what I am. By the grace of God, I am what I am. We had a wonderful time in Daybreak Chapel this morning with this. I I asked the the audience, I said, just finish this sentence. By the grace of God, I am. And I wish we had recorded all of it because we got some marvelous answers. By the grace of God, I'm saved. By the grace of God, I'm healed. I'm delivered. I'm kept. I'm sustained. And a whole lot more. Somebody said, by the grace of God, I'm sober. Whoo! That's powerful. By the grace of God that is literally translated into action on our behalf. By the grace of God, I am what I am. And His grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them. He worked harder physically than all of them. But listen to what He said. Yet not I. Not I, but the grace of God that was with me. The Living Bible says this, the same verse. But whatever I am now, it's all because God poured out such kindness and grace upon me and not without results. And then another, it's not really a translation, it's a paraphrase, but the message by Eugene Peterson, I don't know if any of you read that. It's fun reading. It's just kind of fun the way he words it. It's not Holy Scripture. It is a paraphrase. But listen to this, that same verse. He says, But because God was so gracious, so very generous, here I am. I love the way he puts that because it's just kind of in the way we talk right now. And I I submit to you today, because of God's grace, because of his graciousness, because of the generosity of God, here I am, folks. Like it or not, by the grace of God, here I am. Were it not for the grace of God, who knows where I would be today? And I'm not saying that I'm anything. I'm just saying I'm thankful that I walk in the grace of God. I'm thankful that I'm God's favorite. I'm thankful that I can walk in His favor. Glory to God. Here I am. And I'm not about to let His grace go to waste. That's what the message says. God is merciful. God is gracious. So mercy means God doesn't give us what we deserve. But grace means that God gives us what we don't deserve. Wow, think about that for just a minute. God gives us, because of His grace, He gives us what we don't deserve. So let's look at some moments of grace out of God's Word, if we could, for a minute. The first story I want to look at is the woman that was caught in adultery. It's found in John chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. 
But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Now early in the morning he came again into the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. Then the scribes and Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what do you say? This they said, testing him, that they might have something of which to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger, as though he did not hear. I want to stop the story there for just a minute because I want to find out what you think. What did Jesus write in the sand? There are just scores and scores of uh, philosophy, of thoughts, of ideas, of suggestions by biblical scholars at, at what he wrote in the sand. Was he doodling? just to stall for time while he collected his thoughts. I guarantee you Jesus did not need time to collect his thoughts. Was he writing in Sanskrit? I told you the jokes don't get any better. Did Christ scrawl the names of some prostitute these pious pretenders had visited in town? Not likely. Did Jesus write the name of each stone-holding accuser from the oldest to the youngest? Did he write the sins of each religious leader in the sand and the men were so convicted they dropped the rocks and ran away? We don't really know. Scripture doesn't tell us what he wrote in the sand. Some Bible scholars believe it had to do with the ancient Jewish custom of writing the law broken and the accused names in the dust on the floor of the temple. It's found in Jeremiah 17 and 3. It, it doesn't really tell us exactly what he said. But I submit to you today, it doesn't matter what he wrote in the sand. What matters is that it was effective. It brought about the change that confounded the scribes and the Pharisees that were trying to trick him. Had he just said, well, let's just have compassion on her and, and release her and let her go. Then they would have accused him of not following the law. If he had said, well, the law says stoner, let's go ahead and stoner, give me, give me a rock. Then they would have accused him of not being compassionate and not having grace. They were trying to trick him. And he stooped down and wrote in the sand. And it brought about the intended effect. So when they continued asking him, he raised himself up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Then those who heard it being convicted by their conscience went out one by one, beginning with the oldest even to the last. And Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. And when Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, woman, where are those accusers of yours? What a, what a comment. What a question. As he raised himself back up and he looked around. He turned to the woman. Where are those that accuse you? Where are your accusers? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Whew. Here is the most holy, the perfect, the precious son of God that never 
committed any sin. And here is this woman. Nobody denied her guilt. And she's standing before Jesus. And Jesus looks up because of the grace. Because of that moment of grace that she experienced. He said, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Neither do I condemn you. Do you realize how powerful that is? Do you realize that we can put ourselves in that woman's position right now? Because we are guilty of sin, and sin is sin. Doesn't, there's no level of sin. Sin just literally means missing the mark. I don't know about you, but I'm, I miss the mark a lot. I need the grace of God. Put ourselves in the position of that woman. We're guilty. We're guilty of sin. We deserve the punishment for our sin. And Jesus looks down because of his grace. And he says, neither do I condemn you. Somebody just missed a good chance to shout right there. There is no condemnation. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. No, you didn't hear that. God did not send his son in the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. I want to paint a picture for you, if I can, for just a little bit. That you are that woman standing there, and all the scribes and the Pharisees are are circled around you, knowing that you are guilty, knowing that you are deserving of the punishment that's about to come. Knowing that the next sound you hear is going to be the rocks pummeling you and the pain that you're going to experience. And then pretty soon you will lose consciousness and then death. That's the punishment that was deserved. But I want you to think for just a moment now that you are that woman standing there with her eyes probably closed, not knowing what to do next. And as she stood there waiting for the rocks to start, start hitting her, all she, sound, all she heard was the sound of rocks dropping. Oh, man, oh, man. The sound of rocks dropping, that's mine and your punishment. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. And we can hear the sound of rocks dropping as our accuser, the devil, is turned away because he is defeated. Jesus defeated him on the cross and took the keys of death, of hell, and of the grave because of his grace, because of his love for you and me. Wow. Remember that definition. His grace is an extension of benevolence translated into action. The grace of God today, today, everybody say today, in bringing salvation is no less dramatic, is no less impactful, is no less powerful than it was for that woman in that moment of grace. When you and I give our heart to the Lord and we say, Lord, I receive you as my Lord and Savior, that is our moment of grace. And it is no less powerful, no less impactful, or no less dramatic 
The Bible says that when one comes back to the Lord, that literally the angels in heaven begin rejoicing. Heaven throws a party when we give our heart back to the God. Think about that. It may not be the physical sound of rocks dropping that we hear, but it is certainly the sound of redemption, of mercy, and of grace in our lives. It's the sound of the gates of hell being locked and the door to heaven being opened to us. Hallelujah. That's the sound that that we hear. So let's look at another example. The thief on the cross. I began to think about this example and I thought, what a powerful, powerful example of the moment of grace. As the three crosses were raised on top of Calvary's hill, two thieves, were they guilty? Yes. And one sinless Savior who was not guilty. And the thief on the cross, it's found in Luke 23 and 32. There were also two others, criminals. Everybody say criminals. They were guilty. They were criminals. There was, not, there was no question. That was not part of the debate. That was not the question. They were guilty. They were criminals. And they were led with him to be put to death. And when they had come to the place called Calvary... There they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right hand and the other on the left. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. They divided his garments and cast lots, and the people stood looking on. But even the rulers with them sneered, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself if he's the Christ, the chosen of God. The soldiers also mocked him, coming and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. And an inscription also was written over him in letters of Greek, Latin, and Hebrew. This is the king of the Jews. It was done in ridicule. It was done in satire. Then one of the criminals who were hanged blasphemed him, saying, If you are the Christ, save yourself and us. It's kind of what you would expect from that kind of person, isn't it? But the other... Criminal, yes. Guilty, yes. Do the punishment, yes. He deserved what punishment he was receiving. But the other answering rebuked him saying, Do you not even fear God, seeing you are under the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you, Today you will be with me in paradise. There is that moment of grace when that criminal gave his heart to Jesus right there on the cross. And that moment of grace was extended to him. And Jesus told him, Today you will be with me in paradise. What a moment of grace that was. This man had lived a life of sin all of his life, was guilty of everything that the other criminal was guilty of. But he received a moment of grace because he turned to Jesus. It's a most beautiful example of divine grace. Grace is the removal of our sins so they are no longer a factor in God's dealings with us. I like that. 
We have no greater need than the assurance of God's forgiveness. Now listen, this, this is what I find so powerful in this story. This man had no opportunity to be baptized, but he was saved. This man had no opportunity to join a church, but he was saved. This man had no opportunity to join a religious group or an institution or receive communion. He had no chance to take part in a church potluck dinner. I mean, isn't that a requirement of salvation to take part in a church potluck dinner? He had no chance to put a honk if you love Jesus bumper sticker on his camel. He never even had the opportunity to pay tithes on what he had stolen. But yet, but yet, he received that moment of grace when Jesus said, Today you will be with me in paradise. I want to tell you, it's not, it's not the trappings of religion that get us to heaven. It's not our good works that get us to heaven, lest we should boast. It is a gift of God. It is the grace. It is that moment of grace when we simply receive and say, God, I believe in you. I believe in the shed blood of Jesus Christ. I receive your salvation. And then we step into that moment of grace. We can never repay it. We can never earn it. We can never deserve it. But there it is. Because of the love of God. Because of the grace of God. But yet, by grace, by grace, everybody say by grace, you have been saved. By grace, you have been saved. Let's look at another story. The woman at the well. I love this story. John 4 and 5. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar. Near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. And Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, You have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us this well and drank from it himself as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water. So that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. And if you skip down to the 28th verse, it says, then, leaving her water jar, she finally got it. She finally got that he wasn't talking about the water that came out of the well. 
because she left her water jar there at the well. She had come to collect water and take back to the village. She left her water. I think that's an important point. That's why I bolded it. Leaving her water jar. She left it sitting there because she encountered something much more important than water. And we all know that water is a necessity of life. But so is grace. And she left her water jar. And the woman went back into the town and said to the people, Come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? Again, we see that moment of grace when the woman recognized Jesus for what he is, for who he is, and accepts him. We witness that moment of grace when Jesus forgives all of her sins and receives her. He told her everything she ever did, all of the husbands she had, and the man she was with right now was not her husband. But yet, but yet, I keep going back to that. But yet, that moment of grace that Jesus extended and gave her that living water. The grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. So real quickly, I, I want to talk about just four kinds of grace that we find here in Scripture. I want to look at redeeming grace. Ephesians 1 and 7 says, In Him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace. I, I, I find this so very, very powerful. Because the word to redeem literally means to convert to something of value. No, you didn't hear that, did you? I'm redeemed. It literally means to convert to something of value. To convert. How many of you ever remember blue chip stamps? How about S&H green stamps? Guess what? All of you that just answered in the affirmative, you're old. How'd that feel? I'm old because I remember. I used to sit at the kitchen table with my mother and lick stamps and paste them into the book. And you know what you do when you got enough stamps saved up? You go to the redemption center. Are you starting to get it now? You'd go to the redemption center. And you take that worthless book of blue chip stamps or S&H. We always say blue chips, so that's, that's the one that's more familiar to me. You take, and do you remember the, the dispensers at the grocery store? They dial with their finger and, and spit. And then they started getting the, the higher denomination stamps. And to fill up a page, you only needed one strip of those. Man, some of you are really old because I can tell you're, you're agreeing with me. But that book of stamps was worthless. And you take it to the redemption center and you could buy stuff with it. Convert it to something of value. Think about Paul on the road to Damascus. Got converted to something of value. Think about David after he had sinned with Bathsheba. Think about Zacchaeus and his salvation and, and his whole household. They got converted to something of value. I'm trying to hurry. Abounding grace. 
For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience many will be made righteous. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. But where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. You know what I thought of when I saw that, when I read that? An artesian well. You know what an artesian well is? It's a well that you don't need to pump. Water just comes up out of the ground. Non-stop. His abounding grace is like an artesian well. That just keeps coming up and coming up. And never runs dry. Somebody say amen. How about sustaining grace? 2 Corinthians 12 and 8. He said, my grace is sufficient for you. God's grace will sustain us when we're tempted. His grace will sustain us when we're troubled. His grace will sustain us when we're tired and when we're tried. It is sustaining grace that keeps us. And what do we do with this grace? How do we apply this grace to our lives? Thanking God for His grace that we no longer have to live under the 613 commandments of the law. Who knew? 613. That number's questionable, but that seems to be the, the main number. 613 commandments under the law. Every time I study the law, I say, thank God for the grace. Because I could never live up to the law. But you know what? I can walk in grace. I can walk in grace. I don't have to live up to the law anymore. I can walk in grace. And the last abiding grace. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? One last little story here and then we'll close. Now remember, I'm a Pentecostal preacher, so I'm allowed three closings, right? Okay. (laughs) This is my first. I want you to think about a trapeze act for a minute. We've all seen them, whether live or on television. And we think about the dexterity. We think about the strength. We think about the timing. We think about the synchronization, how they they catch one another, and, and how we gasp at the near misses. But most of the time, there's a net underneath. Now think about our life as a trapeze act. And how the world can look on and say, oh, what a great husband he is. What a great mother she is. What a great student they are. What a great worker they are. But what about when we fall? We have a net. The grace of God. That's why I said we can walk in grace. I don't mean walk on grace. I don't mean walk on grace and just continue sinning because we have grace. The word says, by no means. But we can walk in grace. And when we fall, I didn't say if. Oh, maybe it's just me. I'm the only one. When I fall, I have a net that catches me so that I'm not destroyed. It is the grace, the grace of God. That moment of grace. God's love has provided us a way that we can be reconciled to Him through His grace. We've seen several examples of that moment of grace. And most of us have experienced moments of grace in our life. 
But I want to ask you, if you're here today and you've not experienced that moment of grace, you've not received the Lord into your heart, just like these stories that we studied here, you can have your moment of grace right now, right here. The Bible says all you have to do is believe and receive and you will be saved. That's what his word says. Do me a favor, would you? Would you just bow your heads? Would you just close your eyes for just a minute? And let me quickly ask, if you're here and you don't know Jesus as your personal Savior, would you just lift up your hand as a sign of faith that you want to receive him today? I'm not going to wait long. Time's getting away from us. But if you're here and you say, Clayton, I I need that moment of grace. I'm guilty and I need that moment of grace in my life. Are you here? Would you just lift up your hand real quick? All right. Then I have to assume that we're all family here. Somebody's pointing. There's a hand over here. Okay. Amen. Praise the Lord. 